Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and today I'm joined by Michael McCune of China Talking Points fame in Oakland, California. Michael, so great to see you. Hey, it's good to be here again with you, Eric. Excellent. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about China's foreign policy in Africa, and particularly related to the two key events of the past week, which relate to hostage taking. Which we've seen two major hostage taking events. So hard to call it a trend yet, but it might be a leading indicator. Let's start with Sudan first. Twenty、um, nine <laughs> Chinese nationals taken hostage in Sudan. Fifteen later released. Fourteen still in captivity、uh, as of the recording of this podcast. Twenty、uh, five Chinese workers in the Sinai in Egypt、uh, taken hostage、uh, and then released later that same day. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Chinese response,、uh, what Chinese options are there, and kind of some of the the trends that we might be able to anticipate. So, Michael, give me a sense what your thought was when you kind of saw both of these events happen this week, and how you think the Chinese leadership is interpreting these events. Well, my first thought、uh, was. A phrase that's already being bandied about in the blogosphere was blowback. When you know we have、uh, China making all these、uh, you know direct investments, extending their reach,、uh, trying to secure for their own national interests you know, access to resources and、uh, cozying up to these different regimes to in order to secure that access,、uh, you know it's not always going to work out well. And with their non-interference policy, we were all waiting for some shoe to drop、uh, where China would have to be able to confront with the limitations of that policy. And I. We don't still know the outcome or how the outcome was derived in the Sinai, but in the Sudan, we saw immediately China has to pick up the phone and ask the Sudan government and now the South Sudan government to act for them. Well, let's give a little bit of context on Sudan. This is one of the topics I've been tweeting on quite a bit in the past、uh, few months. That China was invited、uh, a couple months ago to help mediate. Uh, an ongoing, brewing, simmering dispute between South Sudan, the new country, the breakaway country of South Sudan, and uh, Sudan. Uh, now, the reason why China has been so vital to this is because China has, has essentially been the underwriter of the Khartoum government for many, many years. It's because of the the Chinese oil investments that the Khartoum government is actually solvable,、uh, soluble today.、Um, so they have a lot of legitimacy, and this was really China's first.、Uh, Instance of being、uh, an international mediator,、um, much like the United States has played in the Middle East peace process, much like other countries have played. So, so this was really a, a bold step for the Chinese to come out and try and, and do some mediation. Then this hostage taking came as a tool, as a tactic from the South Lebanese to apply pressure to the North Lebanese,、uh, Sudanese. I'm sorry, the North Sudanese. Well, well let, let's juxtapose these two situations because. Some of the press have talked about China being drawn reluctantly into being a mediator, but I think they welcome being a mediator because it's something that they can then control time schedule on, and I think they're much more comfortable about、uh, bringing consensus together、uh, on a timeline that hopefully they can control. So I'm not so certain that I always agree with the narrative I see out there about them being sort of like sucked into an uncomfortable role, but. With the hostage crisis, they are in a very uncomfortable role because time is of the essence. And the Chinese, when they don't control time, it makes it much more difficult for them. And now they don't have a direct action capability, so they have to go through third party to seek resolution, which can make them look weak at home. Which is another aspect we can talk about in a moment. Yeah, we'll get to the domestic aspect. So, so they they've been sucked into this hostage aspect, you know, and and this has really probably messed up their their calculations in part because what you said very early on here. That the traditional tactic of the Chinese then is to call through the formal channels to then engage some kind of action. Now, here's the problem: is the the SPLM, which is the rebel group holding the Chinese, do not have direct con- contact with the South Sudanese government. So, you know, so we think. 
So the problem is, is that China's traditional levers of power and manipulation are not going to work here. So they have to but find. Let me, inter- let me interject something there because this is where one of the things that we don't have great clarity on right now is how deep the tip of the spear penetrates Africa with China's diplomacy. Because if there's one aspect of Chinese intelligence gathering is that I believe there would already have been outreach to the SPLM ahead of time, not because of this, but just because they are a factor in something that China cares a lot about, which is pulling oil out of there. So with the big embassy base in Khartoum, I would have to imagine that there were already channels, even if they were informal, which the Chinese would want to have for these kind of situations. So I believe on the preparation side, I would actually give them the benefit of doubt for having a channel if they needed it. But whether or not they were going to be able to influence in the moment is a whole other question. Now, I'm going to that's I think it's an excellent point that they probably have had relationships and remember the Chinese don't have the moral problems that the West has in dealing with shady governments and shady groups. Um, they have never come out as far as I know with a proclamation that says we don't negotiate with terrorists. Um, they, in certain cases, may not have any problem, you know, putting a suitcase of of a hundred dollar bills on a table and, and and doing an exchange if that's something that they um, if they chose to do. So their policy options are actually much wider than an equivalent French or American policy option in that case. So that that might be going on, and that might have explained why fifteen were released. But on the broader level, on the foreign policy side, what we're starting to encounter is the consequences of Chinese globalization, is that they have a much bigger footprint and they are much more vulnerable now that the fact that they've got a, you know upwards of a million residents across Africa, and then not only in Africa, in South America and South Asia, and it's a much more complicated picture for the Chinese. And so the question, the, the obvious question now is, is there what I think is there somewhat sclerotic framework of foreign policy of non-intervention, non-interference, still possible in an era where they are they're intervening and interfering all over the world. Right. Well, and I think that's that's where I, I wanted to juxtapose the two situations early on, because I think in one on the one hand, mediation wise and being involved in conflict overall is something that they can handle. But dealing with crisis situations is is something where I think most people are expecting them not to be able to perform adequately, uh, either for the people in, in the in the the in the crisis or even back home again. Yeah. How do you think that they what what is the discussion going on in Beijing right now? What is the crisis? I mean, is there a war room set up? Is there a you know, is it's in the Africa section of the foreign ministry? Probably. Um, how in touch is Hu Jintao on, on this? And Wen Jiaping are the are they? I have to I have to, you know, Wen Jiabao. Xi Wen Jiabao, Jiabao, yeah. Uh, Wen Jiaping uh, is, by the way, the, the new Hu, kind Hu of hybrid of them. Yeah, the 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 the, the Baoxi, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I think, you know, frankly, Chinese intelligence uh, is, is, you know, wonderfully informed for the most part. And I can't believe there wouldn't be but top level briefings going on right now, um, especially in such a critical area that they're going to know so well. I'm a little, you know, surprised at the, uh, the Sinai uh, resolution just because I don't uh, I didn't I didn't necessarily think that the Chinese were going to be able to quickly go out and figure out how to deal with some irate Bedouins and. Apparently they did, although we don't have any really reporting out there uh, on, on how that was resolved. Um, but what we do have and what we already see going on is is this uh, – what I imagine happening is this real frustration in Beijing and Zhongnanhai where they just can't act. So they had to wait until some uh, Chinese uh, uh, people that were hostage – had sort of freed themselves in a skirmish and called from under some wooded trees and told told her here and the Sudanese uh, military patrol had to come pick them up. So that's kind of how they got, quote, freed. They kind of helped themselves. So again, much not necessarily to the chagrin, the Chinese are always happy when those resolutions happen. But again, 
nothing that they could directly affect. So looking forward to some of the policy options available to to the Chinese is one for them to, you know, continue on kind of muddling. But I assume that the Chinese are going to do what they've done in almost every other instance, and they're going to be incredibly quick studies. Um, I mean, you know, so I, I, I'm going to I actually feel very, very confident that these are these are actually positive experiences. If, if you can make a, a hostage taking I, I positive experience, the, I, I think they relish the experience. I think they knew these two things were going to happen. They think they're very thankful that it's a small scale and in a place where they have at least a lot of indirect influence. Um, and they can affect the longer term outcomes of, of prosperity uh, across both countries and maybe even with the SPLN. And, you know, this is also a case study because the Chinese have been much more willing to do business in parts of the world where others just fear to tread. They were the first oil company into Iraq. They are heavily moving into Afghanistan. They're in the DR Congo. These are the toughest places in the world to do business. Uh, for these very reasons and these high-risk reasons. And so um, so let's look at some of the different options that they may have available going forward. One is to kind of pursue this, this, this enhanced diplomatic and to do kind of what I would call the Western kind of style of not negotiating with terrorists, but at the same time negotiating with terrorists in the back channels. Two is might we see a, a SEAL Team 6 type of scenario where the Chinese deploy special forces to free them because there's too much political pressure at home. Might we see? Uh, th might this be the opening for conservative forces within the PLA in in, in Beijing, who are advocating for uh, an overseas military presence? Uh, we saw last year, for the first time, the deployment of the Shuzhou uh, Naval Battle Group, their most advanced battle group off the coast of East Africa in UN anti-piracy operations. That Shuzhou Battle Group was then diverted for the first time through the Suez Canal to coordinate the evacuation from Libya. Uh, but it really demonstrated a high, high level of organization sophistication of the Chinese and their ability to evacuate 30,000 people, particularly in contrast to the weakness of the Americans and the British who fumbled all the way through it. Um, but there is a, a contingent within the PLAN and the PLA that want to push for overseas deployment. Uh, might these, the presence of, the, uh, of these types of events uh, be that justification to do that? So a couple different scenarios to kind of evaluate. Yeah, well, I think uh, first and foremost, let's talk about forward deployment because it's going to happen no matter what. There's going to be external bases that are going to be created at least in support of the Chinese Navy. Um, but I don't think those are those are really going to stick to, uh, you know, protecting maritime you know rights of ways. Uh, I don't think that's going to be where you're going to see any kind of uh, black op actions originate from. Uh, regarding sort of extra extraction capabilities, the SEAL Team 6 <laughs> that you alluded to, um, again, um, I think something that China would be very reluctant to do because they wouldn't want the black eye of failure. They probably couldn't survive uh, a Black Hawk Down scenario the way that we barely could. Um, so I think what it comes back to uh, actually the, the sort of Blackwater-esque solution more and more, which is going to see more funding and more training given to private security firms. And I think that's the fine line they're going to walk, walk because we all remember sort of the, the you know, Zambian mine issues, right, where there was a, uh, some shooting indiscriminately, perhaps, luckily nobody was killed. Uh, so, I, But I think that's their main solution is to have sort of private security forces more beefed up uh, with tight coordination with the military. But that's like an arm's length solution that can be more of a deterrent, which mm -hmm. I think is more in line with the way the Chinese would want to act. It's interesting because I wonder if the if the Sudanese rebels and other Africans and other governments around the world uh, understand how to deal with the Chinese. And I think for a lot of them, they look at the Chinese in some ways. They, you know, this was one of my recollections from living in, in Kinshasa in the Congo was to to Congolese. Anybody who was not a black, black African was white. 
And so there was this kind of, there was not a very sophisticated understanding of the differences between Chinese, Africans, Americans, uh, Chinese, Europeans, and Americans, for example. And the Chinese are playing a very different game than the Americans and the French would, for example, when dealing with hostages. I, a part of me thinks that the Chinese would not really negotiate. If it didn't fit into China's geopolitical strategy, if you had 25 peasants held hostage, they might just go, you know what, they're on their own. They're independent citizens. We don't really have any obligation to protect them. You know what? Dust them if you want to. And that's not the reaction that Washington would take, I think. And so I wonder... No, it's not the reaction that Washington would take, but Washington has the sort of cover or capability to, you know, uh, to try to deal with that situation. And Amer the American public knows it. So that's kind of turning that question back onto a domestic response uh, sort of framework. Will Do the Chinese citizens have an expectation of their government being able to protect their citizens as they venture abroad? And I think at this time, I think that you know, they would like to see them protect them, but I think there would probably be an understanding that given how fast this, things are developing and, how, and the expansion of China's overseas interest is developing and how it lags or how far in front it is of actual like force projection capabilities – I think there's some real politic domestically that says, okay, we can't hang the party for not saving, you know, 15 people in some random country, you know, over a bauxite mine. Yeah. And so you, are you probably but I don't think that excuses them to say to maybe a, a not try or but whether or not they would pay uh, or things like that. I think they cannot be callous towards their own citizens, but at the same time, there's, they can strike a balance with their citizens about what is an appropriate reaction in the situation. So they're probably going to rely heavily on the diplomatic back channels to have to. That's, back channel that's, failure that's, is a back channel failure is okay. The Sudanese couldn't help us, and they 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 got our citizens killed. That's it. Okay. That's, Easier and, to say. So then let's kind of wrap it up now, kind of saying, are we seeing a trend? Uh, and is this actually a good thing for the Chinese? The trend is more exposure. Good thing the meaning that they're learning. Yeah, we believe in the trend because we know that this is just going to happen again and again. So I think it's a it's a it's a it's a terrible situation for the Chinese to have found themselves in. But it's a it's it's time you know for them to go through these types of scenarios so that they can get out of game planning and sort of bring it back to reality. Uh, you know, sort of what real life situations are like. Um, and so that they can either prevent or deter or mitigate, you know, when they happen next. Awesome. Well, that's uh, it's been a great discussion. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? You can still find me at Michael T. McCune. Uh, and you can also find me sometimes on China Talking Points. Nice China Talking Points. We'll get the, we're going to fire up the old engine and dust off the uh, the motor a little bit and get that going again. Uh, you can find me at E O Lander E O L A N D E R also over at the ChinaAfricaProject.com and on Weibo I'm at Dabizi uh, Lawai. So uh, big nose foreigner on uh, and I've got a Weibo blog on called Lawai Kamfa, which is the a kind of foreigner's perspective. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris. Thanks for listening. <laughs>